there's just an unfortunate hooligan aspect to kind of any protest, and there are going to be people who are going to break windows and spray paint. And the last two hours of last night, from five to seven, which all most all the nonviolent protesters had already left, and the streets were left over to the violent people. Good evening. Today, our fellow citizens, our way of life, our very freedom came under attack. Let them go! Let them go! Let them go! Let them go! Let them One of the most important tools we have used to protect the American people is the Patriot Act. The Patriot Act closed dangerous gaps in America's law enforcement and intelligence capabilities, gaps the terrorists exploited when they attacked us on September the 11th. Hello and welcome back to Barely Getting By, the long 1990s. I'm Chloe Ward. And I'm Emma Shortis. So over the past, what, 11, 12, infinity weeks of lockdown, Emma and I have been on quite a journey through the 1990s, which we've come to think of as the decade that made us. There have been a few digressions. Um, Emma's reference to a glistening Colin Firth certainly comes to mind. Yeah, sorry about that, everyone. Sorry. Yeah, I'm I'm still struggling with that word, glistening. But I think that looking back on this series, you know, and it's probably not surprising that a podcast series about the 1990s has come to really circle back and just keep coming back to this issue of US hegemony. And the fact that throughout the 1990s, the US didn't quite know what to do with the power that was left in its hands at the end of the Cold War. So this week, and... Bearing in mind that there are a hundred points at which you could choose to end a history of the 1990s, Emma and I have both chosen to focus on issues that we think kind of encapsulate some of the themes that we've been looking at across this series and that also are still relevant to the present. So we're going to look at two points that we think could plausibly be considered the end of the 1990s. I'm going to look at the 1999 battle for Seattle and the wave of anti-globalisation protests that ripped across the world in the late 1990s and early 2000s. And Emma's going to look at September 11th. So she's going to look at both terrorism in the US from without, but also terrorism at home. We're then going to consider how the 90s ended, but also how the 90s lived on also which bits perhaps we've left out in this series on the 1990s and what other stories we might have told and still could tell about that decade. That's right. And we will, of course, return to our old friend Francis Fukuyama and the end of history and and raise again some of those questions that we looked at in the very first episode in this series. But before we get to that, Chloe, as she said, is going to look at the 1999 Battle for Seattle, which is a wave of protests that hits the US, you know, the sole superpower in the world at this time, right at the close of the decade. So, Chloe, tell us what happened in Seattle. Okay. We kind of rushed through this, I think, in our earlier episode about Bill Clinton quite early on in this series when we were talking about about NAFTA and we were talking about globalisation and how the US was trying to remould the world in its own liberal capitalist image. We also spoke about Seattle as a centre of the grunge movement in an episode a couple of weeks ago. What happened in December 1999 has now become known as the Battle for Seattle. It was four days of street protests against the World Trade Organization discussions that were taking place in the city. 700 NGOs, 40,000 demonstrators, including industrial workers, environmentalists, AIDS activists and farmers, 
they all got together along with, you know, the more familiar usual suspects in street protest for these days who are anarchists and students in a highly coordinated set of protests. What I mean by that is they were very skillful in the way they evaded police. They set up barricades, they blocked off intersections and freeway exits. This was a spectacular, highly organized and I think highly successful example of demonstration. It was also, I think, you know, it's something that doesn't readily come to mind when you think about, you know, about the 1990s, and especially when we think about our peaceful 90s childhoods. It also met a massive police response. There was violence. There was the indiscriminate use of tear gas. This is the other reason why I wanted to bring this up, because I'm sure that police violence in America is something that will, will be very familiar to people in the past month, and it's something that has been part of America's history. And I, I think one of the interesting points about that, Chloe, because, of course, you're bringing up the, the protests that are sweeping the United States at the moment, you know, as we're recording, is that the, the historical point of reference for that is never the 1990s from what I have seen. You know, it's all but it's always going back to 1968 and the protests in 1968 and that comparison. So why do you think that the battle for Seattle in the 90s doesn't kind of seem to warrant that historical attention? Well, I think it's I think because it is it's a bit of inconvenient history for anyone who thinks of the 90s as the end of history. Very early on in this series, we talked about this notion of throwback democracy. And I'm using air quotes around that yet again, which sees the 90s as this uniquely peaceable time and, you know, this really triumphal time for liberal democracy. Events like the Battle for Seattle, they don't they don't sit well in that sort of myth-making around the 1990s, and that's why they're something that is quite easily, I think, forgotten in the public mind. I also think that part of it is because of what happened next and the way that they were subsumed into the, the Battle for Seattle in particular, but it was subsumed into this massive wave of anti-globalisation protests in the, in the late 90s and the early 2000s, but then that itself was arguably displaced by some later dramatic events that I know we're going to come to quite shortly. Yeah, for sure. And I think also, you know, of course, there is the, the major difference between 1999 and 1968 in that 68 and the, and the protests today are centred around gross racial injustice in a way that I think 1999 isn't because that 99 is about something else, isn't it, Chloe? It's much more focused on globalisation as an issue. Yeah, you're you're right. And I think that it's interesting that I, d- I don't think that people really think that closely about what anti-globalisation actually means. I mean, I mentioned before that this was a massive coalition of protesters from all walks of life, and it can be quite hard to hold them all together under the same banner of anti-globalisation, and especially seeing as, and I'll get to this in a minute, what the way we think about globalization today. So basically what the Battle for Seattle and the anti-globalization protests were about was they were against global capitalist exploitation and particularly predatory capital that was seen to be exploiting workers and the environment across the world, which is something that we've spoken about previously on the podcast, and that's including and especially in developing nations. So that's sort of the broad scope of the protest, but I think that there was also a particularly anti-American and even a particularly American response in the battle for Seattle. This was about people who were responding to the perception of a democratic deficit in the world's most powerful nation. And this perception that authority and institutions were no longer democratically accountable. So that's another sense in which I think that, you know, anti-globalization protests, they don't sit well against our received notions of what the nineties were and what they mean. 
Okay, so I, I guess then I'm, I'm interested in um, sort of how this comes about, you know, why this explodes at this particular moment. Because for the casual observer, it does seem to kind of potentially explode out of nowhere. But it sounds like that's not the case. No, that's, that's absolutely right. And I hope that, um, I do hope that one of the things that we have achieved in this podcast is a sense that things like anti-globalization protests, they were bubbling along under the surface the whole time through this decade. So while we did have Bill and Hillary Clinton cruising around the world, making, (laughs) making all their liberal reforms, there was dissatisfaction under the surface. So while this looked like an explosion of protest, and certainly it was, you know, it was quite an explosive event, there were move these movements were there all the time. They were always there in the nineteen nineties. Perhaps they were taking a different form by nineteen ninety-nine, but there had always been critiques of liberal cap of capitalism and liberal democracy in the US from within. It's just that this is the moment at which they force themselves to national attention. Sure. And and as you say, this is this is coming from within. It's focused on Seattle, so it is it is kind of focused on the United States. But it does kind of um spread around the world, doesn't it, in a very nineties globalized way. Yeah, no, that's absolutely right. So there was really what what I'd like to call a wave of dissent that broke all over the world. And you know, this has started before the WTO discussions in Seattle. It also it went on for really the next three or four years. And it, it came to places like including Melbourne. Um, but I think what happened is it sort of changed through time. So arguably what had started out as a very strong anti-capitalist critique, it was slowly swallowed up by the increasing focus on human rights protests that really characterised the post 9-11 and especially the post, post-Iraq war period. Yeah, so I, I guess the events that we will we will talk about in in this kind of very short period of time, this very compacted period of time, kind of I guess swept over the the Battle of Seattle, and that's why it probably isn't prominent in in popular memory. I I guess, and and for us at least, you know, we have spoken Chloe a number of times. I think particularly about the Iraq War, pro- the protests against the Iraq War, and and the effect that they had on our kind of political growth. And I suppose it's it's through that frame that we look at protest in this particular era. Yeah, and I think that's that's the other reason why I wanted to choose the Battle for Seattle and anti-globalisation protests as my sort of projected endpoint for the 1990s because they until, you know, until I came to actually look at them quite closely, they were something that I didn't really understand and they also weren't something that I think I fully understood in that sort of formative moment that you're describing for, uh, you know, I guess kind of our shared political consciousness. You know, it the politics I grew up with was post-Iraq war protest culture, which was very much focused on human rights. It lacked, uh, it lacked structural critique. It was very much, you know, the liberal, pro- the liberal politics of the world of the West Wing. And I think, and this again goes into my thinking about, you know, the sort of continuities that we can draw from anti-globalisation in the late 90s to now is, for me, it took until 2008 and the global financial crisis to realise that there was actually much, much more to politics. And, you know, for basically for me to realise that I could rather than blaming um, aberrations and human rights violations by a an otherwise okay liberal democratic state, I could actually blame capitalism for basically everything. And, and I guess in that way, um, maybe we could argue that the battle for Seattle isn't so much the end of the 1990s, but the beginning 
of something else, you know, albeit kind of a long way removed from, from I guess, the, the political consciousness that we're seeing emerge now that, you know, is it possible to argue that these anti-globalisation protests kind of sow the seed for, for what's happening now? I think so. And that's, and that's why I think this, you know, this argument about historical inattention and failing to look under the surface of what was happening in the 1990s and even the 2000s becomes really relevant because I think you can draw a line from the anti-globalisation protests of the late 90s to the 2008 crisis through the Occupy movement to 2016 and really right up to the present where we are seeing if not waves of anti-capitalist protest, you know, the protest movements at the moment are very much focused on structural and racist violence in the United States and in Australia. Um, but people, I think I would say that our generation is more and more preoccupied with questions of equality and distribution in the capitalist world and where we go to next. Okay, so so if we're, I mean, I guess my question then is, if it, if it is true that we can kind of draw that line from 1999 up until today do we also need to to critique 1999 as a protest movement because you know that's a long time ago now and I think many people would argue that we haven't really come very far since 1999 in terms of the kind of kinds of demands that that protest movement was making yeah and I think uh, well the kinds of demands and also the ways in which it was working I mean you're you're absolutely right that one of the great frustrations of the last 20 years is that we actually haven't been able to change much we had occupy which failed we had we had the obama presidency which came to you know president obama came to power on a wave of promise and really left most left most things intact he kind of he kind of tinked around the edges but i think that's would you say that's is that fair to say yeah he wasn't really he wasn't a revolutionary president by any means we had, you know, 10 years of austerity in Britain and in Europe and, you know, a, a somewhat milder form here. Um, in Australia, we've, we've basically, over the last decade, we've seen the complete derangement of our political classes and growing political dissatisfaction that goes absolutely nowhere. So I think that that's, a, I think that's absolutely a fair critique that, you know, you can draw that line from 1999 to the present, but you can also ask, well, where has it got us? But I don't know that us, I don't know that that critique actually has throws up any alternatives. Yeah, which is, which is totally fair enough, I think. But I, I guess that leads me to another question, which is, are there alternatives? Well, you, you'd hope to think so. And I think that that's something that the left broadly has invested a lot of effort in. I'm speaking more specifically about the left in the UK and also in the USA, where a lot of hope and a lot of resources and energy was directed towards institutional and parliamentary politics in the Bernie Sanders and the, and the Corbyn movements. But again, they didn't really work. So I think it's important to draw that line of continuity from the protests of 1999 to the present and, you know, yes, absolutely be frustrated by the fact that that didn't work. The alternative doesn't seem to have worked either. So maybe that's a sense in which, you know, the 90s never really ended, but they are coming to a very abrupt end now, but we're going to actually have to start thinking very hard about what form a new politics might take. Yeah, which which is, of course, a, a huge question, which is probably beyond the scope of uh, this particular podcast. But I, I was struck there, Chloe, that you mentioned, of course, Bernie Sanders and, and Jeremy Corbyn, but not Australia. So do, do you think Australia has a Australian politics has a has a similar option for action? 
Oh, thanks for asking that. <laughs> well, Sorry. look, and I, I have to say, you know, I've been a bit surprised at us throughout this series that we haven't managed to follow through on our usual MO of being all doom and gloom. So here's my opportunity. Um, I think, if anything, the situation's possibly more dire in Australia. I mean, we have the structure of our, our political system is that really basically the way that our two left-wing parties, Labor and the Greens, our two major left-wing parties work, means that we don't really have those reserves of hope and those resources. I mean, basically what I'm saying is there isn't going to be an Australian Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. Yeah, un- unfortunately, I, you know, I think you're right. But I also think we shouldn't, we probably, if we're returning to the to the US and, and even the UK, you know, we shouldn't underplay the role that these protest movements, if we take 1999 as the beginning, the way that those movements shift debates and and shift the way that people speak about politics, what political scientists would call, I think, the Overton window, if I've got that right. Yeah. So so the the way, for example, that, you know, speaking about anti-globalisation in the 1990s is, is perceived as incredibly radical and, you know, super dangerous. But today that kind of critique is, is pretty mainstream, I think, at least, you know, amongst certain political movements. But then I guess there's also the danger of, of the way those arguments can be deployed by oppositional forces. Yeah, and I think, no, and I think to, to take the first point you made... That's a that's a sense in which I think that the 1990s is very different to the present because I think one of the overriding themes of this series of the podcast has been about 1990s complacency and the fact that, you know, the relative security of people in power and the fact they were ensconced in power meant that there was very little opportunity to shift the Overton window, which is, yeah, which is what people call that sort of that frame for what is politically possible. Whereas I think now in an age of greater and more obvious material and political insecurity, there are more opportunities to shift thinking. But yeah, to take the second part and to, you know, get a bit bleak again, I think you're also right in that, you know, there is there is there are strong stirrings against globalization and, you know, probably as strong or possibly even stronger than they were in 1999. But at the moment, they are still being quite successfully co-opted by the right. And I think that that's going to be one of the big issues going forward as we, as we you know, walk into the post-COVID world is whether we're going to see a period of disintegration because of COVID-19 and a period of deglobalization, but deglobalization that would absolutely not be on the left's terms. And arguably, you know, I think the left has never really argued against globalization. They've just argued for more equal, a more equal world community. Yeah, and I, I think in a way um, that's one of the issues that we will get to in the next instalment of this final episode when we talk about the state of the world at, at the end of the decade and the, and the dramatic shift, the cataclysmic shift that happened in 2001 with the September 11 attacks. Barely Getting By is supported and produced by RMIT University. Original music by Stuart Cullen. 